The Italian Radio Hour is sponsored by Istituto Mondo Italiano. Buonasera a tutti, good evening and welcome to the Italian Radio Hour. Io sono Viviana and I would like to welcome back our regular listeners and also welcome any new listeners and anyone listening online at khbradio.com. Also be sure to like us on Instagram and Facebook at the Italian Radio Hour and subscribe to our YouTube channel to catch up on any past episodes. Vorrei dare il benvenuto ai nostri ascoltatori da tutto il mondo, grazie per essere con noi anche oggi mentre continuiamo il nostro viaggio per l'Italia e la cultura italiana. Last week we had a wonderful conversation with Steelers fullback Franco Harris. He's growing up both Italian and African-American respecting the traditions of both cultures and its famous Italian army. Before we get to our guest tonight, let's find out the answer to last week's trivia question. What is the meaning of non c'è due senza tre? There is no two without three. What does that really mean? It's usually an expression that we use when probably to not so positive events occurred and the third one is just around the corner probably the equivalent of the english when it rains it pours well tonight we have a very special guest new york times best-selling author and journalist sarah gate borden author of the house of gucci a sensational story of murder menace glamour and greed gucci una storia di moda avidità e crimine ma prima pubblicità parli italiano do you want to learn, improve, or master your Italian? Istituto Mondo Italiano can help. Located in the heart of Regent Square, Mondo Italiano offers small group classes and one-on-one private tutoring to help you learn Italian in no time. Visit us online at www.istitutomondoitaliano.org. Well, welcome back, everyone. I'm very honored to bring to you author and journalist Sarah Gay Forten. Forten started her career reporting for the Gatorsburg Gazette, a weekly newspaper in suburban Maryland covering the booming development story along the I-270 corridor outside Washington, D.C. Her decision to pursue a master's degree from John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies took her to Italy, where she ended up living and working for 22 years. She moved to Milan as a business correspondent and covered the explosion of family-owned designer labels, including Giorgio Armani, Gianni Versace, and Prada into mega brands for publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the International Herald Tribune, Women's Wear Daily, and Bloomberg News. Borden is now based in Washington, D.C. with Bloomberg News, where she leads a team of reporters covering corporate influence in the nation's capital and de-escalating scrutiny facing giant technology companies such as Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. Her book, The House of Gucci, was published in 2000 by HarperCollins, and updating in a paperback edition with a new epilogue in 2001 and a new afterword in 2021. The House of Gucci talks about the family saga behind the history, um, historic luxury brand and has become a major mo- motion picture directed by um, Ridley Scott, starring Lady Gaga, Adam Driver, Al Pacino, and Jeremy Irons. Sarah, thank you for finding the time in your very busy schedule to talk to us. Thank you, Viviana. I'm delighted to be here with you and your listeners. Uh, Well, before we dive into the book, I would like to talk about the house of Sarah. (laughs) So the Sarah before the book, the young student that went to study to the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Bologna, 
were you the first one in the family to study overseas or were you raised to study foreign languages and study abroad? How was that experience? Oh, it was it was really magical. And I was the first uh, one in my family to study overseas. Um, but I had grown up, my father worked for the US government. So he was an American diplomat. And so I had grown up living in many different countries between Europe and Latin America. And so when I got to Italy the first time in 1981 on a college, you know, Eurorail pass uh, trip with the backpack staying in youth hostels, I fell in love with Italy. And I told myself that I wanted to come back, but not as a tourist. I wanted to have a reason to come back. And then as I went back to college and finished my degree and started working, I completely forgot my promise to myself until 1986, when I landed in Bologna to start my Corso Intensivo in August, in the summer. And I got off at the train station in Bologna with all my bags you know, ready for a year. And I heard the sounds of Italian around me and the people talking on the Binati. And that's when a flash, when that memory came back to me that I had made this promise to myself to come back to Italy with a purpose and I had completely forgotten it. So it came back in that moment and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm back and I have a reason to be here. I'm here to study, to learn Italian, to understand Italian culture. Wonderful. You recently went back to Via Valmeloro. How much has changed and how did you feel? Oh, it was fantastic. It was my, for my 35th SICE reunion. So uh, many, many members of our class came back and uh, Bologna is in many ways similar, but also in many ways brighter and more dynamic. The school has expanded. They, they after a long search uh, for a new building, they ended up staying in the same building and expanding it. And they worked with the same architect and his son uh, who had designed the original building. So it was a real homecoming. Wonderful. Uh, once you completed that program, did you return to the US right away? Or again, were you able to uh, remain in Italy? So when I completed the program in Washington, I was back in the US and I realized that I really wanted to go back to Italy as a foreign correspondent and that was my dream. Um, and I knew that there was no, not going to be any major American newspaper or media organization that would just send me to Italy because I wanted to go there. And so I went back and I started to job hunt from there. And I looked in Rome and in Milan and I realized that I, my goal was to be a business correspondent. And in Rome, the story was more about Italian politics and about the Vatican. Whereas in Milan, there was a real financial and business center. And in fact, that's, in Milan was where I ended up getting my first job, which was with the Sole 24 Ore, mm -hmm. which at the time had just started, had just signed a contract with Citigroup to start an English language online news service about Italian economics and, and business um, news. And they realized they didn't have anybody on staff who had a mother tongue you know, command of the English language, but also a business and economic vocabulary. So I managed to find out about this opening and, and it was just a perfect fit. So from this opportunity, and again, being a business correspondent, how did you get pulled into the fashion industry or how was the transition? It was really very um, simultaneous in a way. I had started uh, reporting in Milan. I was covering the business and economic um, scene. And it was just in those years that the Italian fashion industry was starting to take off. And these family owned labels like 
Versace, Armani, Ferragamo, Prada were, were exploding from you know, family businesses into mega brands. And so it became a very big business story. And I was one of the few people who was covering the fashion industry from the business perspective rather than from the fashion perspective. Mm-hmm. And uh, at what point uh, was there a triggering factor or a moment where you decided that um, uh, you wanted to write this book? Um, do you have a, an epiphany or something that you relate to? Um, you know, it was kind of a slow moving um, development in the sense that I had moved from Sole to Dow Jones where I was covering general business news. And I covered some of the first press conferences, including the first press conference by Maurizio Gucci about how he wanted to relaunch his family label. And I found it fascinating what he was doing. And he was one of the first to bring in an investment bank to buy out his family you know, shares so that he could control the company. Um, so it was really just the beginning of, of you know, bringing sort of corporate finance into fashion. And at the same time, as a beat reporter, I had this longing to write a book, but I didn't know what I was going to write the book about. And I knew I wasn't a novelist because I, I'm a journalist, I deal with facts. Um, but I covered the fashion industry for about six years. Um, after that first press conference for Dow Jones, I moved over to Women's Wear Daily, which was the sort of the Bible of the fashion industry in those days. And I covered all the kind of key moments in the Gucci saga. So I covered um, Maurizio's losing the company and I covered his murder, and then I covered the arrest of Patrizia, and then I covered the relaunch under Investcore with Domenico De Sola and Tom Ford, and the, the debut on the stock market. And so it wasn't until I came back to visit family um, here in America, I was visiting um, in Arlington, Virginia, where I, where I live now, and my father wanted me to go see the new public library because we're a family who loves books and loves reading. He said, oh, you gotta come see the new Quincy library. So I went in and this is dating myself, but in the, in the research department, the old card catalog had been moved over to the side and was against the wall, you know, with all the sort of well, you know, worn cards of all the books. And in the middle of the research department, there was a computer. So I thought, well, let's see what this computer can do. And I went up and I typed in four letters, well, G-U-C-C-I, five letters, and Gucci, and it spit out, in those days, Google still spit out the 10 blue links. And of those 10 blue links, eight of the stories were stories I had written. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is a book. This is something I know something about. Well, we're so thankful that that computer, <laughs> that someone had moved that cart. <laughs> uh, so obviously the Gucci story, it's a, it's a story filled with glamour, intrigue, and you have the rise, the near fall, the subsequent resurgence of this major uh, fashion powerhouse. So you have a high fashion, high finance, a hard um, trending personal tragedy. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the, the book spans over three generations. Um, do you, in your opinion, these generations did the same thing or do you find a difference between first generation, second generation and third generation usually? Well, you know, the saying was in, um, in the Italian family business, the first generation creates, the second generation expands, and the third generation destroys. And that almost happened in the Gucci story, uh, because Guto Gucci was the, the creator, the, the, the founder who had the vision to make quality leather goods 
products um, in his native Florence that he could sell to, to foreign tourists and also to the European traveling elite. Um, his son Aldo was the real expander and he had a marketing sense before marketing even existed. And, and he was the one who came up with the idea of you know, the Gucci's being saddlers to nobility, was, which was a complete fabrication, but it really supported all of the, the Gigi, the horse bit, uh, the Gigi logo, the, the red and green stripe, which was the, symbolized the girth strap that went under the saddles of the horses, saddle blankets of the horses. And then Maurizio and his three cousins who were always sort of in conflict over how the business should be run. Um, and so the company came you know, to the brink of bankruptcy um, before Maurizio lost control of it. So, so it was really a, a real sort of up and down and then up again story. And that was really what prompted me to write the book because in the early days, it was so tragic early days of my covering the story and you know Maritza had lost the company and then he's murdered and then his ex-wife is arrested it was it was obviously almost like a Greek tragedy mm -hmm. um, but when the company took off again I thought you know it's important to really cement the legacy of what the family had created and then show how outsiders Tom Ford and Domenico Bissoli were able to build on that and make it a great you know successful brand again um, the, the book is extremely uh, detailed and uh, um, also the, the ties between the, the family members and everything. How was, how did you go about your research and how was that process for you? How long did it take you eventually to write the book? I'm sure a lot of the material you were, you had, you know, your first end <laughs> was maybe the material you had already covered, but I'm sure there are some archives and um, other um, pieces that went into uh, building such a detailed reconstruction. Yeah, I mean, it, there was a lot to do, and it took me two years all together. Um, it was about 18 months of reporting, researching, writing, and then the last six months was you know, doing the copy edits on the manuscript. And I had a lot of the information about the period that I had covered, so from, say, 93 to 98. But what I really needed to do was I needed to go back and research the origin story and the history and uh, get the you know people to talk to me so I, I was able to get um, two of the cousins um, Giorgio and Roberto to talk with me obviously at that point Maurizio was gone Patrizia was in jail they wouldn't let me talk to her you know the founders were gone but there were many people and this was as an Italian family company there were many people who had worked with the company over the years some of them were still there mm -hmm. who knew the family and others who had left, but obviously had very strong memories. And so it was almost like they were family themselves too. And so they were able to share with me their stories. So I was able to reconstruct a lot of the history. And then while I was writing the book, two key stories took off really under my feet. And one was the takeover battle between Bernard Arnault and Francois Pinault. So that was happening kind of in real time while I was writing. And then the second thing that happened was the trial. So for five months um, from, I think it was May to, May to November, uh, the trial uh, was going on and I was in the courtroom. They were meeting three days a week and I wanted to be in the courtroom every moment because I wanted to be able to capture the scenes and the expressions and the words. And so there was just, a there was a lot to do. I mean, it wasn't like I was sort of twiddling my thumbs and, and relaxing in the evenings. 
No, absolutely. And uh, I believe also when you went back to uh, Italy uh, recently, you visited the, the, the archives uh, that uh, uh, they just reopened in the uh, Le Caldaie. Can you tell us for us who haven't had the luxury to <laughs> visit the archives, what, uh, what do they contain? Oh, it was really quite a moving um, experience. And they've worked very hard over the years uh, to, to re reconstruct and reclaim a lot of the products. I mean, one of the first pieces that I saw when I walked in the first room was a little sort of valigetta, a little suitcase, kind of like a square, almost like a little trunk. And it had the original um, Gucci fabric that was the precursor to the Gigi logo. Mm -hmm. And it was a sort of a hemp, you know, kind of a straw colored background with a brown pattern with little diamonds, intersecting diamonds. And so that was before they came up with the idea of the Gigi logo. But it was also a way to identify their products. Um, so this was very early days in the luxury market. And um, one of the, the sort of ingenious things about this fabric was that it was continuously repeating. So any way you laid out the fabric, you could make it seamless. It was also very cost efficient. So you weren't throwing away, you know, meters of fabric. Wonderful. Well, when we think about a high fashion, we definitely don't think about a, mur a murder case. What was the reaction? In not only people or not just in the fashion industry, but you were, yes, what was the reaction to it? It was shocking. I mean, in a word, it was absolutely shocking. And um, first of all, we have to remember this was in Milan in the 80s. Milan was not a city where there were shooting deaths you know, it was not a, a common or frequent thing. It was, it was really out of the ordinary. It was right downtown. It was a, you know, beautiful, prestigious palazzo. Uh, he was a, he was a well-known name, but he, at that point he was kind of, had disappeared from the public view because he'd lost control of the company by then. He was trying to start over. Uh, he had, you know, $150 million in the bank and he was evaluating other companies to invest in. Um, but there was nothing really controversial at that point about what he was doing. And so it was just, it was, it was shocking and it was perplexing because nobody could really understand who could have done such a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, was the family still involved in, uh, uh, associated with the brand or was it now separate? No, the family was completely separate and it was being uh, run, it was owned by Investcor, um, an investment bank, and it was being run by outside managers, uh, Tom Ford and Domenico de Sola. So they had been with the company, so they knew it well, but uh, they weren't connected with the family in any way. Mm -hmm. um, well, should we give a spoiler or not? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, let's say that when uh, finally um, the investigation caught up with uh, Patrizia's uh, guilty uh, verdict um, through uh, the phone conversations, um, let's just say it was a very clever way of communicating uh, to uh, Pina. Um, very pertinent to the business. And I think uh, we should leave it up there and people will have to. <laughs> yeah, a very close reader. Yeah, that was a great detail. And, and you know, one of the questions is why didn't the, the magistrato, Carlo Nocellino, figure it out? I mean, it was clear that the, the sort of the spurned wife, ex-wife could have had a motive, um, but they were wiretapping, you know, her phones, they were listening and uh, they were speaking the phone conversations were in code, so the, the investigators didn't know what was what was being said. Um, do you think that there are some lessons to be learned out of these uh, the the Gucci story? 
Oh yes, I think this is really a, an epic, epic story. This is like Shakespeare, or as I said, a Greek tragedy. I mean, I think um, it's about family. It's about trying to understand each other and get along, and uh, and not let uh, greed or or interest divide you. Um, it's about love. Mm -hmm. It's about money. You know, I mean, you know, Patricia's famous uh, expression was, "It's better to be." Uh, weeping in a Rolls Royce than happy on the backseat of a bicycle. Well, is that really true? Yeah. I wonder now if she would see yeah. that differently. Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, um, from obviously the, the perspective of us consumers, uh, we do believe that uh, Gucci has indeed managed to overcome this, uh, this past and is still one of the top brands that um, um, indeed, um, everyone aims to have a piece, a piece of Gucci. And actually, I do have a little question. Um, I believe the props from the films, um, from the film, are getting auctioned off. Um, is there a prop that you, or something that you would like to, uh, that you would die um, to have? No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I should say that, um, first of all, I would invite your listeners to follow my Instagram at Sarah Gay Forden on my website, uh, sarahgayforden.com, because I'm constantly updating this story. And I am going to be doing an interview with Jonty Yates, who was the costume designer um, for Ridley Scott in the movie. And one of my favorite pieces, I'm not sure that I need to have it, but I just love it because it's so iconic, is the Gigi tunic that uh, Patricia, Lady Gaga Patricia is wearing in the scenes in New York with the leather, um, the little leather uh, neckline. And um, I, I saw that piece in Milan when I went back last September and they did an exhibit in Milan of the sort of iconic um, pieces from the Gucci archive and it was there. So I have some photos of that on my Instagram, and I think that's what, like that just says a lot uh, about sort of the Gucci style of the seventies. This interview is going to be on the twenty fifth on your Instagram account. Yes, wonderful. We'll make sure to link up, and uh, I will definitely be one of those. Um, I saw the post, and I just I put it on my calendar right away. Now let's uh, switch a little bit to uh, the movie. Uh, so they say the room was not built in a day, nor was the movie. Um, so why did it take so long eventually from to um, become to be turned into a motion picture? And as you were writing the book, were you already visualizing that a movie could come out of the story? You know, they say these things take time and it's really a matter of getting the right talent together. Um, and so, you know, in my case, it took 20, over 20 years. Um, but I always believed in my heart that this story could and should become a movie. And, and when I was writing it, I mean, it's such a dramatic story. I could see scenes on the big screen. And some of the chapters I wrote, you know, with the idea of, of seeing it on the screen. Um, at the same time, I think um, one of the first, um, things that happened after I wrote the book was Martin Scorsese came out in an interview and in, I believe it was Variety, which is the sort of the Bible of Hollywood. And he said he wanted to do a Gucci movie. So of course, nobody was gonna challenge uh, Scorsese. Um, what a master he is, uh, but he didn't want my book. He was gonna, he had already bought the rights to an older book. Um, so that really killed uh, the market for my book. 
And then he never made the Gucci movie. And so after some years passed, Ridley Scott said that he wanted to do a Gucci movie. And eventually he, he did option my book as one of his resources. Um, so, and it took some time. Um, they went through different screenplay writers. Um, but in, I believe it was 2018, they uh, decided to give the project to a very talented young Italian writer named Roberto Bentivegna. And they asked me if I would work with him. And I said, sure. And so we started having phone conversations and then we met also in person. And Roberto not only grew up in Milano um, as, a, as a kid and went into like Italian uh, British school there, um, his mother worked for Armani for 30 years. So he completely knew the sort of Milano da Bere of those years and the, what the fashion industry represented to the city. Wonderful. Um, now, if I remember correctly, uh, the opening scene of Maurizio on the bicycle, and I'm from, from Rome, what I see is the Quartiere Coppede. Uh, and then also I was in Rome when they were still shooting, because I remember my nephew who lives in the Talenti area saying that he had seen the, 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 the tracks and Lady Gaga and so forth. Um, so I guess uh, a lot of the filming has um, taking place in Rome. Um, do you know why uh, there was, I mean, obviously we have Cinecita, but I didn't see any Cinecita studios. I really saw the streets of Rome. <clears throat> um, do you know anything about why there is- Yeah, actually, I think it does have to do, I mean, obviously I wasn't involved in the production decisions, but I think it does have to do a lot with the Cinecita infrastructure in Rome. And, and they really, you know, they really know how to make movies. <laughs> and so, um, my sense is that it was it was much more efficient and smooth to shoot some of the scenes in Rome than in Milan, although a lot of the scenes were also shot, shot in Milan. Mm -hmm. uh, now, talking about a recent event that you attended in a, it was a gala in Washington, D.C., uh, the Beyond the Runway. And uh, so um, there was also Domenico del Sol that had a very nice um, conversation with you. Can you tell us a little bit of how the event unfolded? Oh yeah, you've done so much great research. I'm so impressed. So when I moved back to Washington in 2010, I really missed Italy and Italian life and culture. And so I found, um, after a few years, I found the Italian Cultural Society which is a school, first and foremost, it's a language school. And then it also has monthly activities to promote Italian language and culture. And so I joined the board in 2017 and I helped them with events and um, the big sort of annual fundraising event to support the school and the fundraising and the cultural programs is an annual gala. And so um, I proposed to them that we invite Domenico De Sole, who was the CEO of Gucci, uh, first the CEO, the president of Gucci America, and then the CEO of the Gucci Group uh, global um, business. And so I thought, you know, it would be really wonderful since he's he was Italian from Reggio Calabria, but his professional career really started in the United States and, and started in Washington. He became, he went to Harvard um, and uh, became a tax lawyer in Washington, D.C., and then eventually ended up working for the Gucci family and then the Gucci company. So I thought it would be a beautiful sort of example of this sort of value of the relationship also between Italy and the United States to talk to him about his career and, and how he did what he did. 
Wonderful. Another tandem uh, interview that I saw that um, I really, really enjoyed was uh, yourself with uh, Beppe Severnini, uh, which I would love, I would love to have him on, on the radio program. And uh, um, so that was, uh, that was fantastic. The, I almost a duet because it was reading from the book and uh, you uh, were also translating, interpreting for uh the the audience and uh i have uh just uh, uh we're towards the end of our conversation i have very quick questions for you um what is your favorite place in italy if you were if you could pick one? Oh wow well that's really hard <laughs> because there's so many beautiful beautiful places um but i think one of my favorite places in italy i have to say is cortina d'Ampezzo. Mm -hmm. um, but not the sort of jet set cortina that it's become, but the cortina of the mountains and the hikes and the rifugi um, and just the beautiful scenery there. Mm -hmm. uh, another one, favorite food or maybe a food that um, um, you feel that you can only get in Italy? You know, I thought about that as we went back to Bologna for a reunion and they were all focused on, you know, what restaurants to, to go to for a class dinners. And I thought, you know, it's really the, 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 the standouts of Italian food are really the simple quality products. So a fresh mozzarella, uh, a fresh prosciutto, a fresh piece of bread. It's really the simple, simple things I think that, that you miss um, and you crave. And the very uh, last question, uh, you had an article how to spend a perfect day in DC. How would you spend a perfect day in Milan? Oh, wow, that's a great one. <laughs> um, well, I just did that very recently and I, I catch the tram from my old neighborhood in Napoli. You know, I love the ding, ding, ding of the tram, the clanging. And I go down and I have a cappuccino and a brioche at um, Kuki which is a lovely um, bar, you know, in uh, Corso Genova. And then I go down to the Duomo and I walk around and I like do a little window shopping. And then maybe I go up and see there's now a Highline kind of situation in Milan over the, like near the Rinascente where you can see all the rooftops and the mountainsides. Um, but then there's the new neighborhoods in Milan that didn't even exist when I was there, like the Piazza Gaio Lenti. Um, with the fountains there and the skyscrapers. Um, I always like to go by Corso Como, mm -hmm. a dieci, and check in and see what's going on in the shop there. And right next to that in Corso Como is the Italy. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm very food oriented. <laughs> <laughs> um, I should say something about the museums too. I mean, obviously there's, uh, there's the Palazzo Reale, which usually has a good exhibit, some of the private museums. Uh, I think it's Bagatti Valsecchi. So there's uh, the, the the Scala Museum is very special. Yes. So don't be surprised if in a couple of weeks you might see some posts on my account with these <laughs> suggestions because I'm heading I'm heading there next Friday. So the, it was uh, uh, it will be a perfect itinerary to explore. Perfect. Yeah, I'll, I'll be living through you vicariously. <laughs> well, I thank you very much for your time. Um, your time is very precious, and again, I'm very honored that uh, you spent this. Um, half hour with us um, and uh, we'll be following you and um, also on the 25th as you are indeed um, doing your interview with Miss Yates. Thank you very much, Sarah. Fantastic. You're a fantastic interview. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and your interest. 
Before bringing our next guest on, Salvatore Giardina and Kushbu Ivan, for our segment of the Italian Radio Hour dedicated to fashion, uh, a little pubblicità. The San Rocco Cultural Committee proudly announces the San Rocco Festa to be held next to the Beaver Valley Mall. Join us Friday, August the 12th, Saturday, August the 13th, and Sunday, August the 14th for the 97th anniversary of this beloved traditional Italian festival. Come sample Italian specialties and summer treats. Stay for live performances by the official San Rocco Festa Band, two blockbuster Lights Out Vocals tribute shows to Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, as well as the Beach Boys, local favorite Mojo Dai, and the usual suspects, the fabulous Frankie Capri, and straight from New York City, the Italian singing duo Luis and Joanne. Enjoy fireworks on Saturday night and the traditional Italia baby doll dance on Sunday night to conclude the festa. We would like to thank our sponsor, the Beaver Valley Auto Mall, for their support. Doors are open at 5.30 each evening. Admission is free for children with an adult. Those 13 and older are $3. Please visit us at www.sandrocofesta.org for details. Applying for dual citizenship? Need documents translated? Istituto Mondo Italiano provides certified translation and interpretation services in 20 different languages. Be sure to visit us at www.istitutomondoitaliano.org. Well, I'm very honored uh, to uh, bring to you both uh, Professor Salvatore Giardina and one of the students of this wonderful program that we will be talking about from the State University of New York, um, the FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology, Kujbu. Uh, uh, professor Salvatore Giardina is an adjunct professor of textile development and marketing at FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology, part of the State University of New York, and a menswear designer. Salvatore's passion about menswear and giving back and helping others has earned him honors and awards. In 2016, Salvatore received the prestigious Ragusani del Mondo Award from the city of Ragusa in Sicily and representing the uh, United States in the field of fashion. Salvatore was recognized for his many accomplishments in men's fashion and also for his 21 years as an adjunct professor at the FIT. In November of the same year, Salvatore has also who was also invested as a Knight of Malta as a recognition of his charitable works. Uh, Kushbu is from South Carolina. She's a senior um, um, uh, student studying textile development and marketing with minors in art history and ethics and sustainability. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Great Thank to you. have us. Uh, well, uh, let's start with you, Professor Giardina. Uh, if you don't mind, uh, I will be calling you simply Salo Salvatore. Um, this um, award from Ragusa makes me believe that you have some ties also with uh, the motherland, with Sicily. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, your family, where you're originally from? Sure. Uh, my, uh, my family, my mother and father were born in Sicily, in Pozzallo, Sicily. Uh, they immigrated to the United States um, in 1959, and shortly after that, I was born. Um, but growing up in an immigrant family, recent immigrants from uh, Sicily to the United States, I was always going back and forth to Sicily with my parents during our summer holidays. So I grew up in a household uh, in the United States, but with the culture of Italy. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the traditions that you still maintained? Oh, absolutely. We, we, even though we, we had lived in Brooklyn and my parents still live in Brooklyn, 
it was almost like uh, being in a Sicilian household. You know, we, we spoke uh, Italian. Um, we ate uh, Italian food. Uh, where they lived in Brooklyn, it was an Italian neighborhood. So it was almost like being in a village in Italy, but mm -hmm. in the United States. Wonderful. And uh, so what, uh, what brought you to the fashion industry? Was there anything specific or anyone in your family that maybe was already in the fashion industry? Well, when I was younger, my mom uh, was a seamstress. And, but I really didn't pay too much attention to that. You know, she, she, was, she was sewing. She worked at a, a local factory in Brooklyn. I had joined the Navy uh, when I was 19, 18 years old. And I had in my, my career to be associated with the Merchant Marine because everyone in my family was in the Merchant Marine in, in Italy. So I was just following my family line. And it dates back to the middle 1800s. Mm -hmm. And I realized uh, during one of the engagements I was involved with, uh, the invasion of Grenada in 1983, so when I realized I didn't want a career in the Navy, I, I was actually a 4.0 sailor, uh, and I was asked by the captain, uh, they select 80 sailors a year to go to the Naval Academy, and he had asked if I wanted to uh, go, and then he would sponsor me. And I realized that, you know, having a career at sea might be quite difficult. So during the invasion of Grenada, I opened up a book on careers in the United States, mm -hmm. not knowing what to do. And I looked at this career of the fashion industry and textiles. And I said, well, here's a career that allows me to travel around the world, yet become based in New York, where my family was from. And I did that. I applied to FIT. I was accepted immediately, um, was discharged from the Navy and started school. Wonderful. So FIT for you is like a really now being a, an adjunct professor, really coming full loop because you experienced it as a student. So it was not just a, a position that you have acquired in your career. It, it's really been on both sides of the desk, so to speak. That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's really uh, it's fascinating to teach because uh, like I tell my students, I was sitting in the same chairs that they were, they were sitting in. Uh, so it's, it's, as you said, it's a full circle contribution. Now, just a little funny uh, thing. Um, I believe uh, your Instagram handle is the suit professor. Is it true that you actually wore a tuxedo at uh, a final exam for the students? Yes, that's true. Uh, my students had challenged me to wear a tuxedo during the final exam. And um, that morning I got dressed. My wife was saying, where are you going putting a tuxedo on? And they said there, well, it's, it's just like putting on any other suit except that it's black and I have a bow tie. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> That, that is really, uh, that, that's really, really um, amazing. Now, let's talk a little bit. Um, I know that you have been, again, invested by the Knight of Malta, and we'll talk about that, um, maybe some of your charitable uh, works. But uh, let's um, explain for our listeners and uh, what is um, the Fashion Institute of Technology and uh, what are some of the programs that are offered? Oh, the Fashion Institute of Technology is a wonderful uh, college um, offering two-year, four-year, and also master's degrees. Um, it's primarily known for fashion design and fashion merchandising. Uh, 
Uh, however, there are a lot of other departments as mine, which is the textile department. And that, that department specializes in the technology of studying textiles, but we have uh, menswear in addition to fashion design. We have children's wear, children's design, uh, interiors. Uh, they have a very famous advertising and communications department, um, technical design, and many, many others. I mean, so many different uh, design and business, whether it's fashion, whether it's home products, uh, whether it's jewelry, shoemaking, mm -hmm. everything creative. It's a wonderful school. And on, you know, when I travel around the world and I tell people that I'm associated with the Fashion Institute of Technology, it has such a wonderful reputation, mm -hmm. whether I'm in China or Europe, um, it, it's always met with the highest regard. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Yes, indeed. As I was uh, uh, chatting with uh, Sergei Forden, the author of The House of Gucci, she's also, when I mentioned that um, I would be having you on the second segment, um, she said, oh, the Fashion Institute of Technology is indeed a wonderful institution. Well, Kushbu, let's, uh, let's hear your side of the story. I'm sure um, you will be agreeing with uh, um, what uh, Professor Giardino has shared, but tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and then how you got to FIT. Yeah, so um, I'm originally from South Carolina and FIT is in New York, so it's a, pretty, it's a pretty far jump. But I initially had an arts background and I knew that I was interested specifically in design, so like the intersection of art and function rather than just uh, fine art or be going into business um, and textiles seem to be really kind of the perfect meeting point. Um, I also have a biochemistry background as well so I'm specifically interested in like sustainable technology related to the production of textiles so anywhere from like biosynthetics or just like developing better post-consumer waste um, methods but really like sustainable practices can only be seen by understanding every level of like the textile production and manufacturing and it that FIT in the textile development program there really was a comprehensive overview of that. Um, so that's why I ended up at FIT. And it also just seemed like FIT seemed to be the best place to be uh, to get connections to the fashion industry. Um, I'm sure as you'll hear later, Professor Giard, you know, talk about all of these amazing connections that he has in Europe that he was able to introduce us to um, during our trip. So FIT really seems to be the place to be for fashion or anything textiles related. Wonderful. So what was your reaction once you find out that there was indeed this, uh, this study abroad uh, experience where you would have gone to uh, visit some of the meals? Did you ever think that uh, was going to be something down the path or was, uh, must have been pretty an exciting opportunity? Yeah, it was super exciting. Um, I think when I first heard about the trip, I was like, this is something that I don't think it's ever been offered at FIT. And it's kind of a lot of our first time seeing the first hand behind the scenes of a lot of these mills and factories. Um, so I immediately signed up because I knew that it was it was going to be absolutely life changing, you know, being able to go into like the background scenes of all of these luxury mills that are really at the pinnacle and the forefront of luxury textile development is, I mean, it's an opportunity that so many people in the industry still don't get, you know, and the fact that that was being um, 
put in front of us as an opportunity was absolutely insane. Also, I've never been to Europe before, so it was kind of a no-brainer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wonderful. Uh, Professor Jardina, um, how did you articulate the program and what were some of the pre-trip uh, preparation uh, that maybe we can talk about the actual trip and maybe some of the uh, lesson learned, a good lesson learned um, after the trip. So let's let's talk a little bit about how the program uh, you envision and design this uh, uh, this program. Well, uh, Viviana, the the program. The, let's let's take a few steps back. FIT has many programs uh, abroad, uh, all over the world, especially Italy. And what they didn't want was another class to go to Italy. So I was that that was a big challenge because they've got a you know a. Uh, fashion merchandising, uh, photography classes, drawing classes, fine art. So I had presented the idea of Italian textiles because that is the DNA of, of the fashion industry is textiles. So whether you, you know, from the day that we're born to the day that we expire, we're no, we're no more than three feet away from a textile product. Mm -hmm. When you see a garment, whether it's a blouse, a suit, a pair of pants, you see the textile, you don't see the sewing. I mean, although when you look closely, you can see seams, but you see the fabric and the fabric is against your body. It's so important to understand how fabrics react to certain different environments. And this is what uh, the luxury brands in Europe use because a luxury brand uh, as, your in your background, Gucci, say for example, they <laughs> they, uh, they use luxury textiles uh, because a luxury product demands a high quality textile product. Mm -hmm. It goes hand in hand. It's sort of like buying a car, a sports, a very expensive sports car. Uh, you don't put a four cylinder engine inside of it. You you know it's a supercharged engine. So. Um, the interior of the interlinings, the linings, the shell fabric, that is the majority of what you see. So envisioning this, I had seen in the industry, so many people not understand textiles mm -hmm. and it would benefit people's career, especially FIT students, knowing and understanding this as soon as they graduate. Instead of spending the time to learn this, what would take on average five to 10 years mm -hmm. in one class, the students can learn all about the aspects of the luxury cottons, wools, and silks. Mm -hmm. And then to visit some showrooms, visit museums, and to understand how this all co collectively comes together. Um, can you tell us about some of the specific meals that you visited and what did they specialize? In. Sure. We started the trip with uh, uh, a visit to Reda mm -hmm. in Biella, and Biella is in the outskirts of Milan, I would say about an hour and a half away mm -hmm. uh, at the foot of the Alps. And Biella uh, is known for high quality wools in that region. So it's a, it's a community, it's, it's, it's small towns that house all different mills that specialize in wools. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's because of the water. One of the main reasons why those high quality mills have uh, prospered in that area, because going back to the 1300s, the, that they realized that the water had less minerals in it. 
So it was almost like a decontaminated water. So when you're dying, you're not feeling the minerals. It's mm -hmm. almost mineral free. Uh, and, it, and it makes for really high quality fabric. Then we went to visit Albini in Bergamo. And in Bergamo, which is also about an hour and a half away from Milan, and they're noted for high quality cottons used in shirtings, men's and women's shirtings. And then we went to visit Rati in Como, in the outskirts of Como, and they're known for high quality silks. And they do a lot of work with high-end designers. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, Kushbu, uh, welcome. Oh, oh, let me add one more, I'm sorry. We, we went to visit the store Candiani Denim. Oh. Uh, we didn't visit the mill, but we went to visit their store in Milan and seen um, their whole process on sustainable denim and how they make a custom pair of jeans in Milan. Um, uh, Kushbu, would you be able to elaborate also on what you have seen in the Andy store or some of the other experiences from a student's perspective? Yeah, sure. So specifically at a lot of these mills, we were seeing the manufacturing process from fiber to finish. So I mean, we were literally seeing like the bales of cotton and then that being like cleaned and then processed into yarn and thread and um, woven or knit and then dyed and finished. So seeing that first thing was also really amazing. At Rati specifically, uh, Rati is known for their like their beautiful printings. They do like digital printing as well as traditional printing. So they do beautiful, beautiful silk prints. Like Professor said, for these high-end designers, I mean, we got a little peek at their archives and it was, <laughs> I just like, I wanted to blow hours and hours. <laughs> oh yeah, so mind blowing. And then Tandiani, the denim company that uh, Professor mentioned, it's, um, we got to see their like their micro factory where they make made to measure jeans. So they really took us through the process of how they make their denim at their mill, which is um, not too far from their micro factory, as well as um, how they go about the process of creating sustainable jeans that are meant to last, as well as can be brought back in and interchanged and customized and things like that. Um, so I think from my perspective, it was just really interesting to see how all of these different mills work so domestically like because I think that's so different than like what you hear about textile production here in the United States and we import so many things um and we have a lot of work done overseas so it was really it was really interesting to see like the vertical manufacturing of a lot of these mills and factories so do you think that uh, what you have seen will impact or has impacted uh, some of your uh future practices or oh oh yeah of course um, a lot of these, like these mills and factories, I, I mean, they're really at the forefront of sustainability. Like, I think that a lot of times when we talk about sustainability here in the U.S., we think it's like, oh, it's not scalable, it's not possible to be sustainable and profitable. But these mills are proving us wrong. I mean, they have incredible certification. They they give back to their local communities, and they're uh, they're working with governments to create sustainable legislature, um, and they're making lots of money because they've they have like an established customer base and they're making commitments not only to quality textiles but also to sustainability so the fact that i know that it's possible now it's it's just reassuring that there needs to be so much change that i'm no longer i'm no longer going to settle for something that's less than quality or these like fake promises of sustainability you know
And then we actually um, uh, talked about the sustainability in the fashion industry a few episodes ago, and I highly recommend that you both find, um, I think it was on Amazon, this documentary is called Stracci, uh, which mm. in Italian translates um, into rags, but it's indeed if it were a specific uh, town in Tuscany, Prato, that for centuries has been indeed uh, recycling uh, wool. And uh, how the first step is, I mean, there are indeed um, both the designer has the responsibility to design a garment that is going to not only just last, but it has a conscience. And also we as consumers, instead of going just for the quick fashion and just piling up a bunch of cheap clothes in our closets, it just kind of realize that those clothes that we're not going to wear anymore, they're going to have a polluting effect. So we are all responsible um, you know, both from the consumer side and also the designer um, to, again, not just go for the, the pretty fashion, but something that is also good for, for the planet. Um, Salvatore, I know that she, uh, since uh, some of the students, I don't know if maybe all of the students, it was their first trip to Europe, but you imparted some, um, some cultural information so that they will feel we have about a minute. Um, some of the things that you wanted to tell the students when you go to Italy, you know, uh what they should do or maybe shouldn't do well i think the the first thing is just be to be respectful to everyone to your to your hosts uh say thank you um you know uh something that my mom always taught me is never give your back to anyone so i remember telling oh, the students yes, to that <laughs> um uh no i i mean the, the the really the the whole idea is just to be respectful and nice um uh and the mills have had told me how wonderful the students were. And they said that they get students from around the world. Uh, they said our group by far was the one of the best they've ever had. Wonderful, that's, that's a pretty amazing recognition. That, that was, yeah, that was an honor actually. Well, I cannot thank you enough for taking time from your very busy day to, uh, to share this wonderful experience uh, with us. Again, I stumbled upon it on lovely Instagram and uh, the, the pictures were just captivating and I needed to find out more. So I was very happy when Professor Jardina actually responded to my uh, request from, um, for connecting. Um, I'm going to say my goodbyes and uh, um, I hope to, I will be, will be following you, Kushbu, and try uh, <laughs> and find your name on the labels. So unfortunately, our hour is up. Il Big Ben ha detto stop. It's time for us to say arrivederci e alla prossima. We want to thank you for tuning into the program. If you have any questions or comments, please contact us at italianradiohour at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Who will be our next guest next week? Next week, we'll talk to Andrea Franzoni from Brescia in Italy about his upcoming mission, Train Long Gone, a bike journey across the US to honor his grandfather, Aldo Arrighi, while retracing places where his grandfather had been held captive from 1943 to 1946. Then we'll talk to documentary producer, Michael Di Lauro about his documentary, Prisoners Among Us. So don't miss this episode as there will be many memories and stories about the nonni in the army that many people can relate to. And remember, if you or your, any of your family and friends have missed a prior episode or would like to listen to this episode again, please visit us online at istitutomondoitaliano.org and click on the Italian Radio Hour tab. 
Vorremmo ringraziare i nostri ospiti, Sara Gay Forden, Salvatore Giardina, Kushbu Givan, il nostro sponsor Istituto Mondo Italiano e Alla Boara per la musica. And finally, before we leave, here is our fashion-related trivia question for the week. What does questa gonna ti sta a pennello mean? And again, what does questa gonna ti sta a pennello mean? Please send us your answers to the Italian Radio Hour at gmail.com. And if you're not living in the Pittsburgh area or you might be out of town, remember you can catch us streaming live at khbradio.com every Thursday at 5 p.m. And be sure to like us on Instagram and Facebook at the Italian Radio Hour. Until next time, alla prossima. Ciao, ciao. The Italian Radio Hour has been sponsored by Istituto Mondo Italiano.